we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. Today I am very excited, uh, not only because I just drank a whole large coffee, but also because we are going to have Dr. Mike Lacona on to talk about a number of things uh, revolving around how the Bible should be interpreted uh, in terms of the way it was actually written in the first century and how the original audience would have heard it. Uh, There are a lot of details that differ in the Gospels, for example, uh, that people have often criticized and pointed out to be mistakes or errors. Uh, But Dr. Mike Lacona has done a wonderful job in his work pointing out that these are actually not mistakes. The differences in the Gospels are intentional, and they were actually something that was completely permitted during that time. Uh, And so he's going to get into a lot of detail on that in just a few minutes. But before we do that, make sure uh, you hit follow and make sure you share this with a friend. When you hit follow, it just basically alerts you of every new episode that comes out. Uh, And of course, when you share it with a friend, that's the best way to share our content and to help people understand and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ and scripture as a whole, which is really what our goal here on this show is. So uh, thank you so much for those of you who have been doing that. And thank you for those of you who will. I also wanted to point out that not only is Dr. Mike Lacona's book, Why Are the Gospels, uh, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels, down there in the description for you to check out, uh, but we also have an episode we did just a month or so ago on genealogies and why they are not boring. Trust me, it's not boring at all. Uh, so check out that episode if you have a chance after this. And with that being said, we'll be getting into one of my favorite interviews. Uh, and no, I don't say that every episode. I'm guilty of having said it a few times, but this really has been one of my favorite interviews interviews. Uh, and I am very grateful that we were able to make this happen. So let's get into our interview with Dr. Mike Lacona. Dr. Mike Lacona is a New Testament scholar and author of books such as The Resurrection of Jesus and Why Are There Differences in the Gospels. He is Associate Professor in Theology at Houston Baptist University and the Director of Risen Jesus. Dr. Lacona, thanks so much for coming back on the show. How are you? Oh, good, Nick. Thanks for inviting me back. Absolutely. I'm I'm really glad that this worked out. Uh, and we could save this for later, but I wanted to say that the main topic for today, which is a lot of the detail in your book, why are there differences in the Gospels, uh, really changed the way that I look at the Bible. I know I was just telling you this, but there aren't many books that have literally transformed the way I see Scripture, and uh, yours is one of them. So thank you so much uh, for doing that. Well, thanks for saying that, Nick. Appreciate it. Now, I know you've been busy. Are you working on uh, anything else new that we can look forward to? Well, as a matter of fact, I'm working on a, a more popular level version of my book on gospel differences. And so I'll have a few different examples in it. Um, um, I'll spend more time on some of the foundational issues. Um, it will have some content on some things that I have learned since. And then um, I have a chapter on how this all fits in with the divine inspiration of Scripture and a chapter on how this uh, fits in with the inerrancy of Scripture. So 
looking uh, really forward to it, it coming out. That's awesome. So it sounds like it's, it's like a compressed version of the book with some more new detail in there. Um, yeah, somewhat compressed. There will be fewer examples, but there will be some new examples. And then I spend more time going into some of the more foundational stuff, such as the synoptic problem, uh, mark and priority, things like that. So that these are, you know, foundational thoughts so that if we see Matthew and Luke using Mark as their primary source, what do they do with Mark? Um, do they edit Mark? And what do the other New, New Testament authors do, uh, like with the Old Testament? So that was something I didn't cover in the other book. Um, things like that, composite citations, repurposing scripture, uh, things like that. Now, do you think there's a case to be made for the, the priority of Matthew being the first book written, or is, is it pretty much just Mark now? No, I think a case can be made for Matthew written first, but it, it needs to be qualified. Um, so, for example, I believe Matthew wrote prior to Mark, but I don't believe that we have that gospel of Matthew, because the early church fathers say that it was written in Hebrew, um, we don't have a Hebrew Matthew, we only have Greek Matthew, and that, um, according to the various quotations of Hebrew Matthew, would probably as Hebrew Matthew that we have by the early church fathers, it differs some from the Greek Matthew. Some things, it includes some things that we don't have in Greek Matthew. So I think it was probably a different gospel. And if, um, <clears throat> and, and let me say this, because the early church fathers, so many of them, I believe seven of them, um, said that Matthew uh, wrote in Hebrew, not as many of them say he wrote first, but uh, they say he wrote in Hebrew. I don't think we can just jettison that or ignore that. I, I think there's some decent evidence that he wrote in Hebrew, but we really don't have much in terms of traces of that gospel. Um, and experts of the Greek language, I'm not talking about people who can just read the New Testament in Greek like myself, but people who really understand that language really well, people like Dan Wallace, D.A. Carson, um, they say that, and, and many others will say that Matthew is not translation Greek. In other words, um, they will say that, uh, you know, it, this doesn't show signs of being a translation of a forlaga, a, another, a different language. And um, I can't say why, because I'm not that much of an expert in, in ancient Koine Greek, but um, that's what the experts are saying. Um, I would also say that um, our earliest church father who mentions the authorship of the Gospels is Papias. <clears throat> and Papias is writing somewhere probably around between the years uh, 100 and 130. Um, I, I, I'm probably of the opinion it's between 100 and 110, um, but I'd say the majority would put him just a little bit later, but not much later. But almost everyone puts him between 100 and 130. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, when you look at Papias, he talks about the authorship of Matthew and Mark, and he says that Mark was an interpreter of Peter, that, that Peter was Mark's primary, if not his sole source. Um, it was his primary source for the uh, the content we have in the Gospel of Mark. 
that's our and and we have good reason to think that Papias was either a disciple of one of the apostles, perhaps the apostle John, or that he had uh, acquaintances of acquaintances of those who had traveled with one or more of the apostles. So he's a pretty good source, and his testimony that is contained probably goes back to the latter part of the first century. So we can't really downplay that either. I think he's a pretty good source. And if Papias is correct, that Mark's primary source, if not a sole source, was Peter, well, then what does that say? We see the verbal similarities between Mark and Matthew, so much so that virtually all scholars would say that either Matthew used Mark as a source or Mark used Matthew as a source. Well, if Mark used Matthew as a source, then Papias is mistaken because Papias says Mark's primary source was Peter. So, and he's the one that says that Matthew wrote originally in the Hebrew or Aramaic dialect. So, um, um, I, whereas I don't think that we should reject Matthew, Matthewian priority um, out of, you know, just quickly. If Matthew wrote first, it was a Hebrew version of his gospel that we no longer have. It probably differed a little bit from the Greek Matthew that we have. Um, and could be something like, you know, a lot of times we'll, you know, we, we're looking, all right, I wrote this book on the resurrection, and then later on, I want to write it coming and, and, and say it a little bit differently than I did in the first one. So maybe Matthew wrote his original gospel in Hebrew, and then he did, um, we could either call it a second edition or an all-new gospel of Matthew that he wrote in Greek. It's just really difficult. It's a thorny issue. There's just not enough data to come up with a really solid answer to that. It's really interesting how many uh, different theories there are, how many different factors there are. Like, did he write more than one? Uh, was this one written first? And that Papias reference early on to Mark is interesting as well. Uh, we actually did a thing over Christmas time where we talked about the genealogies in the New Testament. And, and in my opinion, Matthew is just packed full of things uh, that are, are pointing in a theological direction that I think he he intentionally starts the Gospel of Matthew with. I, I uh, it, It's just incredibly interesting how much detail there is and things that sometimes we would look over, which I wanted to get to in a minute, um, because I know you're, you're an expert in that area. But I did want to ask you, just kind of on a quick rabbit hole kind of thing here, um, what's your opinion on who authored Hebrews? Because I know that most people say um, it wasn't Paul, and I know that if you're familiar with David Blackman's uh, view that, it, well, it was Paul's sermon, uh, because Origen is often quoted where he says, we have no idea who wrote it, but then at the same time in his writings, he refers to Paul as the author of Hebrews when he quotes Hebrews. Um, but it, just just for fun, do you have a view on who might have written Hebrews? I don't. It's not a topic to which I have given much um, attention, and I know there's various views um um, some are open to it being Lazarus. Some are open to it being Luke. Um, Ron Sauer, who was the final doctoral student of F.F. F. Bruce, uh, who was my primary Greek professor, uh, just a remarkable person. Um, he did his doctoral dissertation uh, from a text in Hebrew, 
uh, Hebrews, and he thinks that uh, Apollos may be the best candidate for it, but others have cited Barnabas. It's just, I, I guess I have to agree with Origen that in truth, only God knows who wrote it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just fascinating to me um, to think about what went on in that time that we just can't see, and even if there were far more writings referring to these things, a lot of them have been burned and destroyed and lost, And uh, but it, it's just fascinating it's almost like you're you're traveling back in time uh when you're when you're looking at these things but i i wanted to move into um the idea of the not only the differences in the gospels but how the person in the first century greco-roman world would have viewed the gospels and how it's different than uh we may view them today in a lot of ways so can you start by giving us somewhat of an overview of the work you've done uh, in terms of viewing the four Gospels through a first-century lens and not through a 21st century, or not only through a 21st-century lens? Well, I, I think it's uh, well. It is certainly a majority, a strong majority position within contemporary New Testament scholarship that the Gospels are ancient biographies, and when I say that, it's of the Greco-Roman flavor. Now, maybe you think, well, why Greco-Roman rather than Jewish? And, and that's a fair question. The reason scholars think of them as Greco-Roman rather than Jewish biographies is that for some reason unknown to us, um, Jewish authors just didn't think much about writing biographies of their sages. Um, I think we have uh, four biographies written by Jews other than the Gospel authors, four biographies written by Jews in the first century. You have three written by Philo, one of which, uh, is, well, you have a total of about 90, uh, or 90 plus a, a few, certainly just under 100, uh, with, written within, say, 150 years on each side of Jesus. But in the first century, you've got three written by Philo, and then you have Josephus, who wrote one, his own autobiography. And we see that they are very close, at least one of Philo's, his life of Moses, and then Josephus's autobiography. They're close to uh, close reflections on how Greco-Roman biographies were. So after those written in the first century, Jews did not write biography of their sages until modern times. And that's from uh, Louis Feldman, died a few years ago, about 20 years ago, but um, he uh, he was the leading Josephus scholar of that day, and he's the one that said that they just didn't write biographies of their sages until modern times. So it seems like Greco-Roman biography is by far the most dominant uh, uh, genre of biography. If you were going to write a biography back then, it's likely going to be Greco-Roman biography. And the two biographies of the Hellenistic Jewish uh, writer Philo uh, that don't conform to Greco-Roman biography. Uh, they're more or less commentaries of, uh, they offer commentary on scriptural passages that they don't read a whole lot like biographies. They don't even focus on a single person, even though the title uh, says it's a life of, let's say, Abraham. Um, so, yeah. So, the Gospels appear to be Greco-Roman biographies, or we just call it ancient biographies, and so we're going to anticipate that they're going to follow the literary conventions that were present in ancient biography in the first century. Plutarch, most people know who Plutarch is 
uh, because of Roman history and so on and so forth. And of course, you mention him a lot uh, in your book because he's written so many of these Greco-Roman biographies. And, and it's interesting that Jews weren't writing them until fairly recently. That really is uh, interesting to me. Uh, but what are some details we see in the writing or the biographies, that they call them lives, I believe, that Plutarch had written? Uh, what are some some things we can like kind of glean from Plutarch's writings and mm-hmm. see also in the Gospels during that period? Well, well, one thing we can see uh, that's interesting in Plutarch, as you know, when I went through his forty-eight extant lives or biographies, I was able to identify thirty-six stories that um, appear in two or more of them, and of those thirty-six, thirty contain differences in the way. He reports it, so um, so it's really interesting. You know, you can see how he reports the assassination of Julius Caesar and its immediate aftermath, um, and not only how Plutarch reports it in four different of his biographies, but also how others report it with with differences. So that that's kind of interesting. But what, what I notice in Plutarch despite the fact that he's going to report you know, on the assassination of Caesar in four of his lives or the Catalinarian conspiracy in seven of his lives, he never copies and pastes. He's always going to vary his story a, l- a little bit, even in those um, which were probably written simultaneously. So he's writing several of these lives simultaneously, probably six of them, six or seven of them simultaneously. And even those are going to contain differences. So um, he's uh, employing the techniques that he was taught in the compositional textbooks that um, have been preserved by authors such as Theon and Quintilian and Athonius. There are all these different um, compositional textbooks with these exercises, many common exercises among them. And Theon, uh, he didn't at all suggest that he invented these. Um, He's writing in the first century, probably, and he's just using the exercises that were already in play in that time, and he brought in a few new ones. Um, So you read Plutarch and how he's varying the stories, and you find that many of these Compositional devices, these exercises that are spelled out in the exercises in the compositional textbooks. If you read the differences in view of those, you see that they really account for them quite well. Um, and so it is reasonable to infer that since Theon says that these exercises were taught and taught to and learned by historians and poets and orators and were used in every form of writing, and then you read Plutarch and how he varies the stories, you say, well, of course, this makes perfect sense. So then you come to the Gospels. Well, sometimes they do copy and paste, so actually they should not have done that. Um, And the Gospels are typically referred to as Klein literature. In other words, like lower, small, lower-level literature, They're, they're not written by people who were extremely literate, you know, by high society. So um, we can understand why they would do some copying and pasting, but they mainly engage in a lot of the same kind of variations uh, that we find in the techniques that are described in the compositional textbooks, plus others, and that are employed. We see Plutarch 
employing. So um, I, I think that's uh, quite remarkable to see that. And it offers us a quite plausible explanation, I think probable explanation of why many, if not most, of the differences in the Gospels exist. That's that's funny because when you think about somebody um, viewing the Gospels through a 21st century lens as though they were biographies written in the last several decades, the stuff that we see in the Gospels that may reflect that is actually unusual because the way they wrote Gospels or the way they wrote biographies at the time was just totally different. And, and uh, that's actually one of the things that stood out to me that you mentioned with the 30 out of 36 stories for Plutarch that when he had taken uh, the same story, he would he wouldn't just as you're pointing out, he wrote them simultaneously at times, so he wouldn't just forget the details. He intentionally changed some of the the details in order to communicate to a certain audience. Is that right? That's that's correct. Now it, it is interesting to note, though, that the changes aren't major ones, um, and a lot of the the kind of changes, editorial changes that we're we're talking about are things that you and I and all of your viewers do in our normal, ordinary, everyday conversations. We do them and we don't think that we're guilty of error or misleading. Um, yeah, so um, most of these are, are quite common even today, though by no means all of them. Now, what are some of the things that they would do when they change the details? Because you also point out that this was permitted and taught in the compositional textbooks. I think uh, you mentioned spotlighting, where they'd spotlight a certain character. Um, and they, so there are different things that they would do, where they, or they would change a monologue to a dialogue or vice versa. Um, so what are some of the things that they would actually change that we might see in the Gospels? Well, for example, let's take spotlighting, for example. Um, you know, you'll have occasions in Plutarch where in one uh, life he'll mention, um, like, for example, in his life of, um, I think his life of Caesar, when or Cicero, when the Catalinarian conspiracy is taking place, um, Cicero receives some letters uh, from an anonymous source delivered to him at night, um, informing him of the conspiracy. And so he calls an emergency meeting of the Senate the next day and um, hands the letters out to the senators and then says, you know, what, what do you think we should do? And Julius Caesar gets up and he says, you know, we should uh, arrest these guys and put them in prison, confiscate all their goods, and wait until we crush the rebellion, and then we'll put them on trial. And um, in the life of Cicero, Plutarch says that at that point, uh, Cato the Younger and Catulus, Catulus had just been uh, voted a couple of months earlier to be the uh, consul for the next, one of the two consuls for the next year, who were the leaders of, of the Republic for a year, kind of like the president, but you only led for a year. So you have Catulus and you have Cato, who both get up and they object to Caesar's proposal and they say, no, we need to crush this rebellion now. We need to arrest and execute these conspirators that we can get our whole hands on now and then go after the other ones, uh, Catiline and his army out there. Uh, if we don't act swiftly and um, decisively and put these these guys to death, it will embolden others. And so they persuade the Senate to follow that, and they 
capture and execute some of the conspirators that they're able, the senators who were part of that, whom they could get their hands on. Well, in the Plutarch's life of Cato the Younger, he only mentions Cato getting up and objecting to Caesar's proposal. He doesn't mention Catulus, even though Catulus is the more prominent person there because he had just been elected as consul. So why is that? Well, because for Plutarch, Cato is his main character, and so all the focus goes on Cato. He knows that Catulus is there, but he doesn't mention him. Now, when you come into the Gospels, you find this uh, a couple of times, even in the resurrection narratives. So uh, first of all, in, in John's Gospel, it says, early in the morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene got up and ran to the tomb um, and found it empty. And uh, But the other Gospels report that multiple women went. Well, which one was it? Multiple women, or is it just Mary Magdalene? Well, John doesn't say it's just Mary Magdalene. He only mentions her. And he seems to know that there are other women present because she runs back, she finds the beloved disciple and Peter and says, they have taken the Lord and we, we don't know where they have laid him. You know, so that seems to suggest that John is aware that it's more than Mary Magdalene. And then later, or, and then you've got Pete, uh, according to uh, John, Peter and the beloved disciple run to the tomb and find it as Mary had said. But in John uh, Luke's gospel, Peter runs to the tomb and finds it as as Mary or as the women had said. Well, was it just Peter, as Luke said, or was it Peter and the beloved disciple, like John says? Well, Luke doesn't say just Peter. He only mentions Peter, and I think he's shining his literary spotlight on him because just twelve verses later. Jesus is talking to the Emmaus disciples. It says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he says to them, why the long faces, guys? And he says, you know, are, are you the only one here in Jerusalem um, that uh, hasn't heard the news? And then they explain what happens to Jesus. And um, so um, when, when they're doing this, they said, and then some of uh, the women came back and reported seeing angels at the tomb. And then some of our own, some of our own went to the tomb and found it as the women. Well, wait a minute, Luke, just 12 verses later or earlier, you just mentioned Peter. Yeah, that's right. Well, you contradicted. No, I didn't contradict myself. I only mentioned Peter because he's the lead apostle. But of course, as you see, I'm aware that there were others. Well, Luke, we don't do that kind of stuff today. Well, yeah, we don't, um, you know, in the 21st century. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not form a committee for the misleading of future historians. Um, what they did was they write using the literary conventions in play in the first century, and that's how we need to read the Gospels. It's like this. I've, I've heard this said before, and I like it, um, and it's been attributed to several people. I, I don't know where it originates, but it, here it is. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. All right. The Bible was written to a, an, an original audience, and we were not part of that audience. So the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. And if we keep that in mind, that will be helpful. Yeah, and the, the spotlighting thing I think is really interesting because we do do that all the time today. I remember I had a friend uh, who had passed away when I was in, I think I was still in high school. And so I would tell people, Wait, I can't believe just a week or two before he passed away, I went to the movies with him. I also went with six other people. There was a whole group, but it's like mm -hmm. I'm not going to mention the six other people because they're not 
they're not the highlight of the story. Um, I'm intending to communicate to a person that knew him uh, that I went to the movies with him. And, and it makes me think in the case of Mary Magdalene, when she's sort of spotlighted at the tomb, it seems like John kind of spends more time talking about Mary Magdalene uh, than the other Gospels do. Do you think this is one of the reasons she might be spotlighted there? Yeah, well, we can only speculate, of course, but that could be. It, it, you know, I think there's a really good chance that Mary Magdalene was a a primary, one of his chief sources, I should say. Not his primary source, but a chief source. If John wrote the gospel, uh, if the Apostle John wrote the gospel as uh, is the traditional authorship, then Mary Magdalene may have been his chief source for that. If, as many modern scholars, most modern scholars think, it wasn't John, but it was someone who was either a minor disciple or who used one of Jesus' minor disciples as the primary source, then it still could be that Mary Magdalene was a chief source for the author. Yeah, that's just incredibly fascinating to me, the way all these details sort of play together. Um, And another thing they would do is compression, right? Like, for example, when you look at Mark's gospel, uh, Luke and Matthew have a whole drawn-out story about the temptation in the desert, and Mark's like, there was a temptation uh, next, and it's like, that's it. Um, So compression is another thing they would do. Well, that's more of simplification. Compression is when you narrate an event as though it occurred over a shorter period of time than it actually did. So when Mark narrate or mentions the the temptation, he he doesn't really give us how long it was, but he simplifies it. He just doesn't give us any details behind it. So that's just like a simplification. Yeah. So a good a good example of compression in the Gospels. Um, we find in Mark when it comes to the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree. Um, so, it, you, forgive me, um, that that is uh, Matthew compressing events. So, you have Mark on Palm Sunday, Jesus goes into the temple after his triumphal entry, and he looks around, but it's late in the day. So, after looking around, he leaves, and he goes back to um, Bethsaida, in order to you know rest for the night, and in the morning they get up and they're they're coming into the city, and Jesus sees the fig tree, no figs on it, he curses it, and then it he it's on Monday that he cleanses the temple, then they go back to Bethsaida, and spend the night. Tuesday morning they get up, they're walking back, and Peter sees the the fig tree all withered and died, and says, Lord, hey, the fig tree you cursed is withered and died, right? So um, when you come to Matthew, uh, it's Palm Sunday, and right after the triumphal entry, Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses the temple. He overturns the tables and, and drives out the money changers. So what he does there is he conflates two events, the Monday cleansing with the Sunday looking around, and makes it a single event. So he compresses there, and then he also... After there, he goes home. Monday morning, they're going into the city. Jesus sees the fig tree. He curses it, and immediately, Matthew says, immediately it withers and dies. So there he compresses the two stages that Mark has it on Monday and Tuesday. He compresses them into a single stage uh, so that the fig tree uh, is cursed and dies on Monday. So that's compression in Matthew. And then, so another um, another factor would be that same story with the cleansing of the temple. John places toward the the beginning of his gospel, chapter two, likely to emphasize it in a certain way. Is that right? 
Well, um, that's debatable. I, I think, and most scholars, uh, New Testament scholars, think that John has displaced the event. So he's taken it and displaced it from its original chrono- chronological context and transplanted it in a different one. We find Plutarch doing this on occasion, um, and it, John, I think, is likely that he does it. But not all agree. Some would say that there were two temple cleansings, uh, Randy Richards, um, uh, ha- has argued this in a journal article, but most, and he, and I haven't, uh, read that. I like Randy and I think he's a great scholar. Um, I haven't read his article. I have it. I just haven't had the time to read it yet. But, um, most New Testament scholars do think, even including evangelicals like Daryl Bach, Craig Keener, they think that John displaced it and, and put it early in Jesus' ministry because he wants to frame the life or ministry of Jesus as a Passover. Jesus is the Passover, and that's how they're kind of enclosing the entirety of Jesus's ministry as Jesus being the Passover lamb. And so what your work has done in a lot of these areas where there are differences, where there people claim they're lacking details or different details, what your work has kind of done is shown that not only is this something that has precedent in the first century, but it actually should kind of be expected with the way that they were taught to write. That's exactly right. In fact, we, when we recognize that this is how they wrote in the first century, and this seems abundantly clear, um, that we shouldn't be surprised when we see the New Testament author or the gospel authors doing it. We should be surprised if they did not. I actually wanted to ask you about one of these, um, one of the stories people claim to be contradictory, just to get your opinion on it. But for example, the the Judas death story, where in Acts one. Uh, he falls headlong and bursts open, and uh, but then in Matthew 27, he hangs himself, and uh, I think the Matthew 27 account is the one that says he threw the money back to the Jewish leaders, but then Acts 1 says he purchased this field, or the field was purchased, and people will reconcile that by saying, well, he hanged himself, and then he fell off of the rope eventually and exploded, um, or they'll say, well, he bought the field indirectly by giving them the money. Um, so do you have any sort of specific view on this or, or maybe any helpful details? That's a, that's a real tough one. Um, I think that that is probably one of the two toughest discrepancies we find in the New Testament, one of the two. The other being the chronology, uh, some of the chronology that takes place in the infancy narratives. Um but yeah, the thing about Judas is a very difficult one. You know, we can speculate what's going on there in order to try to reconcile. Um, some of it seems like a bit of a stretch to me, and I try to be fair with this. Um, one thing I've noticed is, um, um, let's see, when when in Matthew it says he fell headlong, or is that... Um, I'm sorry, Acts 1. Is, is that Acts? He fell headlong. Uh, the Greek word there has, has been used in the Septuagint, the Old Testament in Greek, and elsewhere to mean um, it, it would have a, a very similar meaning to saying when he was caught cheating, his law firm took a dive. Or, or the stock market took a dive when such and such occurred. Um, and, and that word is used in that sense elsewhere. The Greek word is used that sense. So it could mean that, you know, he was like, Judas was like, he hung himself, or uh, I'm sorry, 
his his career as a disciple of Jesus took a dive. I, I think that's a bit of a stretch, but it is possible. Um, in terms of the 30 pieces of silver and the throwing, um, that gets even more complicated because what Matthew does use there is he he uses a composite citation where he goes to the Old Testament. And this is something that is found in the Greco-Roman and Jewish literature as a practice as well. It is not unique to Matthew, although the New Testament authors do some of this stuff more frequently than other ancient authors. It's not unique to them. So what they do is, it's like um, Matthew says, as Jeremiah the prophet said, but if you look for that verse in Jeremiah, you won't find it because it's in Zechariah. And what uh, Matthew ends up doing is he uses the Zechar- this verse from Zechariah. He takes one word, the word field, from Jeremiah, puts it in the Zechariah verse, loosely rewords it and paraphrases it, and gives it a meaning that's absolutely and entirely foreign to what we find in either Jeremiah or Zechariah, and then that's and then says Scripture has been fulfilled. So. Um, you know, that's troubling when we first say that. I say, well, that's not really a fulfillment of prophecy as we would look at it today. But as I said, this is not unique to the early Christians. This was a fairly common uh, literary device that was used by the Greeks, the Romans, and the Jews of that day, and the Christians did that as well. That's one of the more radical uses of it by the gospel authors or the New Testament authors, um, but it's there. And in Hebrew, when it talked about throw it to the potter, um, in um, I think that was in Zechariah, when it says to throw the, the money to, he, he tells Zechariah to throw the money to the potter, that actually meant um, to take it and give it to the potter. But it is reinterpreted by Matthew to actually throw it in there. So, you know, what, what could have happened was Judas did actually take the 30 pieces and throw it, and Matthew's trying going back to the Old Testament to find scriptures to see if any of that makes sense with what he knows to have occurred. So whereas I don't find that persuasive I would uh, uh, in terms of a prophecy, I would never use it as a prophecy of uh, that Jesus fulfilled, I do think it's valuable um, historically speaking, to say, you know, why would Matthew do this? Well, there was probably a historical uh, reminiscence behind this, that this is what Judas did, and Matthew goes back to search the scriptures to see if you can find any mention of something like this, a foretelling of it in scripture, and that's what he found. Now, do you think there uh, there would be a contradiction in terms of let's say your view of an errant seed inspiration? Many people don't realize that there are a lot of different definitions of what people mean by inerrancy and inspiration um, a lot of the time, and some of them don't reflect what the Bible actually says, I've found. Um, But do you think it's a contradiction if someone were to suggest that the primary details of Judas committing suicide and there being a field bought with blood, but the details are actually different, um, do you think that would contradict the view of inerrancy that that you might hold? Not the, the well, it's possible, but not necessarily the one that I hold. I hold that the Bible is inerrant in all that it teaches. Um, it's the same view that uh, I'm pretty close to that too. And William Lane Craig holds that. Um, and some would say, well, that's just infallibility. Well, it's whatever you want to call it. Um, but 
Yeah. So if you're looking at a more traditional view of inerrancy, uh, a more, like we could call it a hard or, or rigid view of inerrancy, um, then yeah, that's, that's going to be a problem. And they're going to try to go to some, you know, different lengths in order to reconcile those differences and maybe just say, well, boy, this is a really hard one to do. And, um, there's probably not a contradiction. We just don't know how to resolve it. Um, that just doesn't that doesn't satisfy. I don't find that satisfactory. I find it ad hoc and trying to rescue a, a certain view of scripture that you hold. Um, so um, yeah, I take a more loose view of a, a, a more modest view of inerrancy to say that is it is inerrant in all that it teaches. And I think that makes more sense with what we observe in scripture. Yeah, I'm pretty close to that too. That's I would be comfortable probably using that definition and I think that uh, especially when you go to the Old Testament um and even details in the New Testament it seems like there are times where there's a difference between the truth proposition and the way in which the truth proposition is arrived at. Um like I I do think that they scientifically they were a mess. The ancient Israelites, I think that they thought the earth was totally different. They thought stars were alive. Um, I think there's just a lot of things they thought that weren't true, but God uses them where they are with their current knowledge. Otherwise, what you end up with is automatic writing or you end up with uh, dictation. And so you'd end up with God not actually using a unique human being. Um, And the example that's given that I've even heard in Christian schools is like, well, you're, you know, you're the, imagine like these different trumpets and God's the one playing, but that just kind of turns into dictation. Um, and so I, I did want to get into yeah. inspiration a little bit and inerrancy because your view really, I mean, I don't think the view you've presented even contradicts the traditional view of inerrancy, but it really doesn't contradict inerrancy and inspiration. I don't think in any way, because what this is what they actually did in the first century is they were taught to write this way. It reflects the other writings and it would be really strange and suspicious if the writings didn't match what was going on in the first century. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Um, but I do think that most traditional inerrantists, at least American traditional inerrantists would not be comfortable with saying the Bible is inerrant in all that it teaches. They want it to be inerrant in in every last detail, because although they won't say, uh, I'm not aware of any scholar, even uh, uh, an evangelical scholar, who will say that God dictated to the authors what to write, um, and rightly so, because then you've got all kinds of absurdities. You have Matthew and Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke improving Mark's grammar. You have editorial fatigue in Luke. You have memory lapse in 1 Corinthians by Paul, because uh, he can't remember who all that he baptized, if there was anyone else other than the house of Stephanus, um, which, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit into a dictation view. Um, but the way that tradi- most traditional inerrantists will speak about inerrancy is virtually indistinguishable from a dictation view. They'll say that God used the personalities of of the biblical authors, but um, how? How and you know without it being dictation? And well, that's just a mystery. Well, okay. I mean, that's possible. It's a mystery. But I think a more flexible view of inerrancy, such as I presented, that the Bible is inerrant in all that it teaches, 
is far more in line with what we observe in Scripture than um, the more um, inflexible or tradition the way it's traditionally understood here in the United States. And I think it all goes back to how you know the view of ins- inspiration is. Um, there, there's a great emphasis on the divine element in uh, the process of inspiration, but there's very little attention given to the human element in it. And as um, William Lane Craig says, what we have to look at as the confluence of Scripture when it comes to inspiration. The confluence of Scripture means there's dual authorship. So it's both God and human in there. So that would allow a significant human element in the a, the composition process. Yeah, and I think um, and I think a good example to look at, and kind of an obvious example, is when Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest in the garden. Um, now, I think in personally, in his veiled knowledge, um, him setting aside, not leaving his divinity behind, but partially veiling it, and, and I use partially carefully, because I think there are times we do see his divine knowledge uh, shine through, even, even in his humanity. Um, I think that he probably did think that the mustard seed was the smallest seed in the garden. I think that's something they might have thought, but he wasn't making a statement about botany, so as as Craig would say. Uh, so the the way in which he arrived at the truth proposition is different than the truth proposition itself, which is to show that even if you have a little bit of faith, uh, it could do wonderful things. So the truth proposition given by Christ was not that the mustard seed is this or that. It was just used as an example uh, for the truth proposition itself. But I think that the the idea that Scripture is inerrant in all that it teaches is, I think it's a pretty helpful definition. I think it's something that's at least pretty close. Uh, when you're when you're accounting for all of the data and not just taking a view and trying to force it onto Scripture, because what happens is we end up looking at everything objectively except the Bible, and it gets us in trouble when somebody confronts us. Uh, so I think that's why it's so important to just keep digging and keep doing work and keep keep figuring things out as to why the Bible says what it says. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask you, like, let's say I was a Jewish person living in the first century, and you'd mentioned toward the beginning of the episode uh, that Matthew was likely originally written in Hebrew. At least that's what a lot of the early church sources say. Uh, What are some things, as a Jewish person in the first century, um, what might I see in Matthew's gospel if I'm reading it or if it's read aloud that might stand out to me as a Jewish person in that time? Uh, that that Matthew may have done intentionally and appropriately. Yeah, good question. Um, well, let's let's talk first about the genealogy. You mentioned that right at the beginning of this program. <clears throat> Some people try to uh, reconcile or harmonize Matthew and Luke's genealogy because they recognize there are differences uh, between them. And um, they'll say, well, you know, Luke talks about uh, the genealogy through Joseph, whereas Matthew has it through Mary or something like that, right? Right. Um, And it just doesn't work out that way. Um, Reason being is in Matthew 117, I believe it is, Matthew says, and these are all, these are all the generations between Abraham and, uh, and Jesus, and there's 42 of them, three sets of 14. 
But Luke, within that same period, Luke goes back to Adam, but between Abraham and Jesus, there are more. Luke has more than 42 generations. So is Matthew wrong there? Well, then you got to look at it and say, well, you know, you read through that genealogy a few times, and then you're thinking, but Matthew has a, seems like he has got an emphasis on 14, because he's got three sets of 14. And in Hebrew, if you repeated something uh, two or three times, it was to emphasize a point. So um, um, it's like in Hebrews, uh, the author quotes Jesus as saying, I will never, never, never leave nor forsake you. That's that's for emphasis. Um, or holy, 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 it says it three times, right? Well, Matthew's got three sets of 14 generations. Well, what's the, you know, what's behind that? Well, uh, the Hebrews had a rhetorical device called gematria, where they would assign a numerical value to a letter. So in ancient Hebrew, there were only consonants, there were no vowels. So it'd be like A is one, B is two, C is three, etc. So in the Hebrew alphabet, what we would say is the letter D is, uh, is four, and then V would be six. So Dawid for David is four, six, four. There's three Hebrew letters, four, six, four, that comes to 14. So what uh, has been proposed by a number of scholars is Matthew is employing gematria here to get three sets of 14. That's his primary concern. So artistically, he is uh, has crafted his genealogy because he wants to say that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah. So does he invent uh, any generations? No, but he arranges them in such a way. He's not concerned with the exact number. He arranges them artistically in order to say Jesus is Messiah. And an indication of this is that at the the last generation, the 14th generation, the second set is Jeconiah. Well, he turns around and he uses Jeconiah again for the, the first generation in his third set. So it's like he's cheating. Uh, I mean, he had plenty of others to work with. He just didn't care. He wasn't trying to be precise. He's just interested in getting three sets of 14 generations to art, say artistically that Jesus is the son of David. And then when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, it, we have something similar. Uh, scholars have recognized that um, Matthew is also presenting Jesus as the new Moses. Moses delivered the law of God, but Jesus is interpreting the law. So you, you go up on the, on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Luke has the sermon, but it's on the plain. And most scholars do think correctly, I believe, that these are not two separate sermons. They are the same sermon, but Matthew has relocated Jesus to the top of the mount rather than on the plain in order to uh, position him as like Moses up on Sinai. But Moses, rather than receiving the law, Jesus is interpreting the law. He's the new Moses. And so there, therefore, you find uh, I believe beginning in, uh, I believe, verse 18, 20, 21, something like that, where Jesus says, you have heard that the ancients were told, thou shalt not kill, and whoever murders will be guilty before the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be guilty before the court. You have heard that it was said, um, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you 
that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus is not setting aside the law there, but he is interpreting it. He is saying, look, it's not a matter of just the external stuff that the law for which the law is concerned. God wants you to be holy on the inside. So if you're not committing adultery in your mind, you won't commit it with your body. Um, that you won't play the act out in real life if you're not doing it in your mind. Um, you sow a thought, you reap an action, as it's said in, in, in present vernacular. So um, I, I think that Matthew has, uh, I agree with most scholars, he has repositioned Jesus to the top of the mount. And I think what's, what's indicative of this, I've been to Israel twice. I've been to the traditional Sermon on the Mount location. I've been to another location that they think may be where Jesus could have said it, but I don't think either of these places are where he said it. I've recited the Sermon on the Mount for Matthew in both these places, and the acoustics are horrible. So if there was any kind of a major crowd, they would not have heard him. They would have had to have been down on the plain with the crowd sitting on the mount if it were positioned in sort of an amphitheater type, uh, and then the acoustics would have been good, and you could have had multitudes of people that would have heard him. Now, do you think that the five discourses in Matthew kind of resemble the the Torah? Do you think that's like a that's intended by Matthew? Um, that I don't know. Uh, I just have not been. Um, I haven't taken time to focus on that aspect of Matthew. And do you think that with the Sermon on the Mount, do you think it actually was a sermon, or do you think it was different teachings sort of compiled by Matthew? Well, I think Jesus actually did com uh, deliver a sermon on the Mount, um, and I, I think that some of the teachings that um, are found within the sermon in Luke and in Matthew, especially Luke, but also in Matthew, are teachings that he gave on that day, and we don't expect that he's only going to give them on that day. But with most scholars, I do think that Matthew has taken—they um, they took the—, the some of the things that Jesus said on that day, the Sermon on the Mount, and then he's called um, a number of other teachings that Jesus gave throughout his ministry and and combined them with what Jesus said on that particular occasion, and then arranged them artistically to, to give us the Sermon on the Mount that we have. So like in Luke, you, I think you only have, I don't know, around 30 verses on the Sermon on the Plain. In Matthew, you've got, I think it's 111 verses. So it's much longer in Matthew than it is in Luke. And then some of the stuff that Matthew has included in the sermon, Luke has peppered throughout his gospel. So I think Matthew's put these together. And I remember a few years ago, I memorized the Sermon on the Mount as in Matthew. And as you're memorizing, it's really a, a, a really nice uh, exercise. I hadn't uh, memorized scripture in probably over 30 years. And then I took this on. I probably worked on it. 35 to 45 minutes a day for five months, it took me to do it. Um, but the more I spent time in it, I, I began to see that a lot of the teachings, as Matthew has put them together, he's woven them together so that they, most of them are connected to one another. It's just one connected, single connected thought throughout and only a, a few that I uh, have seen are not connected in any way, but all of them are, and it's seeing the connections that help you interpret them in different, uh, how they may have been meant on that occasion, or at least how Matthew interpreted them. Wow.
Yeah, and I was really excited also to hear you talk about Matthew's genealogy because I agree a hundred percent with with uh, with what you presented. I don't think that one of them is Joseph and one of them is Mary. Um, I agree with the David, and actually Matthew uses David five times in his genealogy total from uh, the description through the genealogy, and he's he's the author who uses the son of David to refer to Jesus more than any other. Uh, and, and it's, I'll just say one more thing on this, but it's interesting that when you look at that first section of 14, um, Matthew actually changes five names or, or modifies them. They're all appropriate. Like he uses uh, Jacob instead of Israel. He uses Ram instead of a Ram. And when you add hmm. David, which is 14 and Abraham, which is 41, or I'm sorry, you multiply it, you get, I think it's 573. And then when you take the sum total of all the names in that first section, you also get 573. Uh, and this is only possible with the modifications that Matthew had made. So that's another example mm-hmm. with that inerrancy and inspiration idea where it's just fascinating that they're they're not making mistakes. They're doing something that a Jewish person may have looked at and said, oh, why is this name here instead of this one? We, we have the genealogies and chronicles and... Um, so why is this different? And it may have stood out to them, uh, but I think it's just fascinating to look at those details. And I, and I'm so grateful for the way that you have pointed, uh, a lot of this out and that it's actually appropriate. They're not mistakes. It's actually appropriate for them to do that. Yeah. I didn't know that thing, the 573 that you mentioned, that's pretty interesting. I think the principle for all of us who read the gospels to, to grasp here is that when we read them, we must read them through the lens of ancient biography and according to the literary conventions in play uh, at the time of writing, rather than reading them through a 21st century lens of modern literary conventions and force our ideas of modern precision upon them. Yeah, absolutely. And I wish we could go five hours, but I'm going to respect your time here. Uh, when is your new book coming out? Uh, when can we look forward to it? And, and it's, is it something I can link in the description yet, or is it going to be a little while? It's going to be a, a little bit. Um, I have a, a major publisher who's very interested in it, but I, I have to check out uh, one thing before I I, I I go with them. And um, uh, once once... I find a publisher and, um, you know, uh, sign a contract. It'll probably be a year from that. So I would guess we probably will have something by fall of 2024, maybe even earlier. Awesome. Well, I'll be looking forward to that. I'll put your website in the description along with why are there differences in the Gospels. Um, And Dr. Mike Lacona, thank you so much for joining us on The Universe Next Door. Thank you so much, Nick. Appreciate you having me on again. Thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. Don't forget to hit follow, uh, share this episode with a friend, and join us back here next week. As promised, we're going to be talking about the Divine Council. Uh, so we're going to do that next Monday. And after that, the following week, we're going to feature Oz Guinness. So make sure to come back next week at 6 p.m. And we'll see you then on The Universe Next Door. <laughs>